0: You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer
1: the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You know, the whole idea is, like, it's not inside baseball. It's, it is, but it isn't. And I know you're an expert of the game, so you take it where you as far as detail we'll we'll have a deal but it's like general interest stuff too like stories and I'm going to ask you about your career as a player you know we could talk about working with Harry Carey you can pretty much I'll I'll, I'll guarantee you this thing
0: is I can probably at this point as many times as I've spoken to as many diverse groups as I have I could probably give you a good solid 40 minutes on the social unrest in China I know so you give me I know you can you give me whatever it is you need and I will act like a political candidate. I'll talk a lot and not say anything.
1: Get out of here. Way back. hooks up. There's the cycle. You can't put it on the board. Yes. Yeah. A single, double, triple, and home run in one game. But he is hit for the cycle. All right. Well, this is exciting. I feel like we have been um, talking about having this guest on our podcast since we began in January. And I know I've talked to you a couple of times between then and now. And finally, we get to sit down with you, and uh, we appreciate your time. Let's welcome to the cycle Steve Stone.
0: Well, Pat, I know this was a long time in the making, but here we are. We've got some time. Exactly. We're at the point now where most of the season is behind us. We've got a little bit left. And then the exciting part for us at this point will be just exactly what the plan is going to be moving forward. Because I think the White Sox fans, although they won't know it until it gets into full swing, they're interested in how this team can get better next year with the inherent difficulties that seem to be lying ahead.
1: Sure, and I'm interested, you know, as a White Sox fan, and um, I wouldn't call myself an employee by any means. I have a good relationship here with the White Sox, and I do get an occasional check from them, so I'm... (laughs) My loyalties have strengthened, but as a fan, definitely. Like, wh- where do you think? Because I, I feel like they're they don't have to do a complete tear down and rebuild. They have so many good players under control for the next few years. And do you see a value in like blowing it completely up, getting rid of every starting pitcher? And let me explain to you first
0: that. I have no inside knowledge as to what the plan is going to be. I don't sit in on any meetings, and I don't give my suggestions because, frankly, they don't ask, and anything that is non-solicited really doesn't have a great deal of value in the grand scheme of things. I do have my definite ideas. I don't believe it's going to be a, a full blow it up and start from the beginning. I just don't think that's the culture of the Chicago White Sox or the personalities of Kenny Williams and Rick Hahn and Jerry Reinsdorf. I do believe that there's a great challenge ahead for this team because when you take a look at tradable commodities, the two that jump out at you are Sale and Quintana. Yet, if you're sitting in that front office, if you're Rick Hahn, you want to try to build around two of the best left-handers in all of baseball. That would be ideal. So the first thing you say to yourself is, do I have enough guys coming up from the minor leagues that I can fill in some of the gaps from this year? The answer is probably no. I've got a few guys, I just don't have near as many as I was like. This farm system is not near as productive as some of the others around baseball. And so you can't rebuild that way. Tim Anderson has been a revelation. He's come up, and he's really impressive. In fact, he just seems to get better. His bat is very lively. What I like about him is that from what I saw in spring training defensively to what I see now, it's very encouraging that he's taken at least three steps forward defensively. He still has to smooth out the rough edges if he does that. I think he's going to be a terrific player. And you can't teach bat speed, and you can't teach velocity, exit velocity, as they call it today. You can't teach that. You either have it or you don't. Mm-hmm. He has it. So that's one of the guys coming up from the system that's pretty exciting.
1: What do you think sample size, Major League at-bats? How many at-bats do you think are a realistic um, representation of kind of what you, where you'll be?
0: I think there was a way to quantify it years ago also minor league at-bats were of vital importance. And some people would tell you that a guy needs 2,000 minor league at-bats before he's ready to the major leagues. That's not the case today. Today is different. Guys are coming up more quickly. There's not near as much talent, although the talent getting to the major leagues is spectacular. They're bigger, stronger, faster, and quicker than they've ever been before. That's documented. Look at Olympic times. You'll find out that people are just getting a bit bigger, certainly a bit faster, and they're getting stronger. So it it only stands to reason that these guys coming to the major leagues would be physically better players. I think the greatest thing that the White Sox could do was to, if they have to call it a college, call it a college, call it a study group, call it whatever you want to call it. They've got to teach these young players how to play baseball. We're getting a lot of guys coming to the major leagues with inordinate talent that don't know anything about how to play baseball. And then once they learn how to play professional baseball, you've got to teach them how to play major league baseball. Then when they learn how to do that, you have to teach them how to play winning baseball, which is the third and final step, which is most difficult. So the thing that I've heard, and I heard this from a disinterested party who's been around the game for a long time, and he's with another team, I won't divulge his name, but he said to me something really interesting that has characterized what I've seen with the White Sox these last many years, and that is, and I'm not talking about I don't know 2005, I wasn't here. I remember that team. I remember going through the celebrations that everybody went through that Chicago has a winning baseball team for the first time, and I don't know, since the big war. Yeah. Uh, actually, the first big war. So. Um, <laughs> You're talking about the Civil? Yeah, well, that was, that was a big one too. But, uh, yeah, they've mixed in, I think, two or three yeah, since we, then. We're but good for um, a
1: war every 2030. Yeah,
0: so I, I think that um, we're in a situation where teaching these guys how to play the game, how to play winning baseball is of vital importance. That's one of the things this organization can do as a head moving forward because St. Louis Cardinals seem to do it a lot. They seem to get lots of injuries, and all of a sudden they bring up a guy you never heard of from the minor leagues, and he makes an impact. Steve Piscotti, one of those guys that you didn't hear of anything, and all of a sudden, boom, here he is contributing in the major leagues. They seem to make pretty decent trades. And that's one of the areas that, obviously, they're going to work on with the, uh, with the front office. Also, this year creates some challenges, and that is a really thin free agent market. Not many. Uh, there's a couple of catchers out there. Um, there's Matt Weeters from Baltimore. He's a free right. agent. Yep. There's, there's Ramos from the Nationals. He might be the guy that you'd look at and say, hey, Boy, he'd look really good because uh, this is a guy who can really hit. He had LASIK surgery on his eyes in the offseason. He's come back and hit the ball very well. And so, you know, this is a guy, if, if the Nationals don't sign him, and apparently the talks have broken off, then that's a guy you might be interested in. Because there's no doubt they have to shore up the catching position. That's one of the essential positions you have to have. That old
1: And they drafted a catcher. Well, they did. And you think he'll stay at that position? Well,
0: that's a good question. I haven't seen him catch professionally. I do know that there was some question. He seems to want to catch. We're talking about Zach Collins. Zach Collins. He's got big power. Uh, his bat will play in the major leagues. The question is how quickly and where because everybody believes he can hit. I think it was a good pick at 10. There were some people who thought that it might have been overdrafting. I didn't think that because of the need of the Sox. So if this guy can catch, what a bonus it would be. In the meantime, you need somebody else in that spot that is going to do it immediately. Yeah. And Ramos is one of those guys that's ready to go again who knows if you're going to get him or not.
1: And you need help in the bullpen as well. And they have, um, they're pretty high on birdie and there there's talk about him coming up in another week. Do you think that that is realistic or that's, there's I'm value not sure in that? if
0: they want to start the clock running on Zach birdie at this point, he does throw a hundred. He's been unbelievably good. He's got a great arm. There's no doubt about that. Um, can they bring him up? Sure they can. Uh, do you want to bring him up this early? I don't know. Um, you know, if this team were in the thick of the race, I would say, sure, this guy can help bring him up. Um, they're not in the thick of the race.
1: Right. Well, that's uh, interesting. So starting on the clock, yeah, that is a big deal. That's, that, that's a big deal. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you, get, uh, you, you take a look at that with young players and you say to yourself, well, look at Chris Bryant with the Cubs. He came up. He won rookie of the year in a year where they didn't bring him up when the season started. Okay because yeah. they want to keep him another year. Right. And imagine the value of that other year when you look at it in dollars and cents toward the free agent year or another year of control.
1: Yeah, I remember them chirping about it then, Cub yeah. fans, but they're not, they're not saying they're not anything saying much now. More. No, they're not <laughs> right. saying
0: much more about him because it looks like he's in line for an MVP.
1: All right, so let's back way up because you bring sure. up two things that you said there, a great arm and, and the Cubs. These are both things that we could talk to you about. Let's start with your career as a, as a major league player. Okay. right? You started with the Giants. I did. San Francisco.
0: And it was the, the thrill there was being on the same team with four Hall of Famers. And I made it as a non-roster player the first year I was ever invited to spring training. They brought me there to throw batting practice. But I felt that this was my opportunity to show some people that I could actually pitch. So for two months before spring training, I got myself in great shape. And a guy that was friend of mine, the guy that had played in the minor leagues, was in the big leagues the year before. He went 5-5, five and five, was a left-hander, and he was pretty much rounding into shape. So he came to spring training thinking that he had everything made and that he could you know, come to spring training and then during spring training get himself in shape and throw and peak for the season. Well, while he was preparing to peak for the season, I was taking his job. <laughs> and, you know, he's a good kid, but... The job was there, and I figured if the job had to be won by somebody, why shouldn't it be me? So the number one starting pitcher was Juan Marichal, a Hall of Famer. Sure. Number two, Gaylord Perry, a Hall of Famer. And I was the third starter out of spring training. Then I looked in center field, and Willie Mays was standing there. And I looked at first base, and Willie McCovey was standing there. And that, that covers the four Hall of Famers. Then we had a guy who was a member of the 30-30 club, five different years with five different teams. You might know his son. Bobby. It was it Bobby Bonds? Bobby Bonds, yeah. his son, Barry, obviously, sure. is Barry Bonds. Uh, Bobby, surprisingly, could actually do everything better than Barry. He could run better than Barry. He could throw better than Barry. He had more power than Barry.
1: Well, Barry was only like two then.
0: Uh, yeah. <laughs> he wasn't even born yet, really, What I'm probably. talking about as he moved along. And <laughs> Bro, Barry, okay, Barry would I probably tell you that. Yeah. Actually, Barry was running around the locker room because Willie Mays was his godfather. He was this high. Uh, His father was infinitely talented, didn't have the dedication. I mean, let's face it, you look at, in this game, the saddest thing to me is unfulfilled potential. I see guys that are wonderfully talented athletes, very good players, but they lose sight of the fact that, look, the cure for cancer is not coming out of the gene pool that is their family. They are being paid in an inordinate amount of money because they can either throw the ball very well right. or they can hit the ball very well. And so everything in their life comes as a result of this particular skill that you have the top infinitesimal percentage of the world. And so you have to make sure each and every day that you are prepared for what the major leagues has to well, I think it applies
1: you. to everything in life. It's like you have the great ones are, and we've talked about it on this podcast before. We talked about it with Carlton Fisk last week. It's where dedication and natural ability kind of meet and intersect, and then things really take off. I mean, you see that all the time. You can see people that are very, very brilliant, but they don't apply themselves. Or, but you also talk about coming into spring training in shape. That used to be the the mo. Like people would come to spring training to get in shape. Now these guys kind of stay in shape all, all well, year that's round because
0: when you look at the average salary of the major leagues and you look at the mean salary you're talking about average salary maybe four and a half million mean salary maybe five something million whatever it is guys are being paid a lot of money i had to work in the off season because we weren't getting paid very much my first salary in the major leagues was 13 13, wow. dollars. what did you do in the off season Um, I did a lot of different things. Uh, And I was just, it's funny because last night I was sitting there thinking about the difference in today's players and when I came up. And I remember looking for a job. It was was in Phoenix. It was my second year. I was going to go to major league camp that year, my second year in pro ball. And I was looking through the newspaper at the want ads to try to find something because I had to work to make some money to be able to live because I was getting, let's see, I got $500 a month in A-ball and I got $750 a month, but that was only for four and a half months. You had to do something the other times. So I saw this one ad and come here. You can make up to, I don't know, $100,000 a year, whatever it was. Uh, Very simple, very easy. Come to our seminar. and, And so I went to the seminar. And all of a sudden, all these limos pull up. And I should have known it was in the back of a strip mall. That's number one. That should be num- that, that, That's right. tip-off number one. Number two, you walked in, and there was two American flags up by the podium. Run over there, one over there. And I knew whoever was coming in was not running for president. So I looked at it, and I thought, oh, a little too patriotic. So now the guy starts to give his presentation to us. We're sitting around in, in the seats, and uh, all of a sudden, I notice that there's a guy sitting behind me. He sits directly behind me. There weren't that many people there. And this guy starts talking about, do you have any idea how much it costs in this day and age for a funeral? No, actually, I hadn't even thought about it. <laughs> he says, well, it costs X number of dollars. And I said, boom, okay. Do you know what it's gonna cost in 15 years? no, I hadn't thought about that either because I was 35 years old at the right. time. Uh, no, actually, I was younger than that. At that point, I was, I was 25 years old. So um, he said, it's going to cost this X number of dollars. He said, that's a huge difference. He says, and we have a plan where you can actually ensure the fact that you're going to have your loved one, or you are going to be buried for X number of dollars. And they wanted us to sell prepaid, Pre- funerals. pre-paid funerals. And so <laughs> then, but the, the, the hook was that they <laughs> wanted us to spend a great deal of money. Uh, and they, the, all of a sudden, when the talk ended, this guy was sitting next to me. He was the closer, as I found out later. And he turned me around. And he said, you know, you look like a, a pretty bright young man. And um, uh, you have a college education? I said, yeah. He said, well, you probably want to be the executive, the, the executive level, you know, entry here. And it, for three thousand five hundred dollars, wait a second. <laughs> the, the the object of me coming here was because I need to make money. He says, "Yeah, but you're looking at it the wrong way." I said, "Actually, I'm not."
1: And he this says, "Well, like Amway funeral." This is exactly exactly
0: what it was like. And I I went to three or four different of these things, and they were all the same thing. They were all, if you pay this, well, then you're going to yeah. eventually make this, and also you can get this. You know, you can get these people to come along and i and you buy this kit and i said well what does a kit have in it like a, like a miniature casket i can show the people what it's going to look like i mean exactly what is it so at any rate that uh, that was what i was um, that's what i was doing in the off season many time yes
1: selling prepaid funerals Trying to find something. you would not see that now no so you go from san francisco and this is where your relationship with chicago starts and i will say this you have this distinction how many people are loved On both sides of town that are in baseball I wouldn't say not too many
0: well look I've I've been fortunate for a couple different things number one came to Chicago in 1973 and I came here as a White Sox player and I was traded to the Cubs for Santo right well Santo and also there were three minor leaguers along with me that went uh, went to the Cubs from the White Sox Santo went from the Cubs to the White Sox I've always called it a deal that hurt both teams because uh, when Ron got over there, he was told in no uncertain terms to stay away from third base. Chuck Tanner, the manager, told him that because. You're was it making... the end of his career? Didn't he? Oh yeah, but you're making. Bill Didn't Melton he get a prepaid nervous.
1: funeral with his contract? No, but what no? he got
0: was <laughs> what he what he got was nine. He got nine, nine All Star appearances and five Gold Gloves. And with all due respect to Melty, he was a really good hitter. Right. I'm not sure he could play defense with Sando. So Sando took it as an offense which, of course, I'm a very sensitive fellow, so I was told him he was the second-best second baseman in the history of the White Sox with Nellie Fox being one. <laughs> right. He hated that. So after one year, he quit. Um, I, on the other side of the equation, the other side of town, spent three years there. I was a 20-game winner, actually, with them. A lot of people don't realize that. It did, however, take me three years. So um, uh, then I came back here as a free agent with yeah. Bill Veck, but the thing that sets everything apart, there's been a lot of players played for both teams. There hasn't been anybody who's done radio and television and played for both teams. I've done radio and television for both the Cubs and the Sox and played for both of them. So my love affair with the city of Chicago has gone on for a long time. But the
1: legends too, Bill Vec, Harry Carey. What what was what was it what was Bill Vec like?
0: Bill Vec might have been the smartest man I've ever been around in baseball as far as ownership is concerned because he was so creative this was a guy that was a master showman and a lot of you you might have heard the next generation of owners everybody talks about how creative charlie finley was charlie finley got a lot of his ideas from bill Vec. he was really an interesting fellow i used to just talk with him all the time i'd sit up his office was literally in the bard's room he'd be at a big table he'd have a, a pitcher of beer he'd have uh, an ashtray, but he also had an ashtray in his wooden leg. So just in case he didn't want to reach across, he could actually put it out in his leg, which was something that was interesting. But he he was a voracious reader and could talk to you on any subject you wanted. So it didn't matter what you happened to be talking about that given day. Bill was available. He was there. We would sit down. We would talk. I found him fascinating. And he's one of the true legends of the game, one of the characters of the game. And the people uh, who ran into him along the way, uh, they were enriched by meeting him. And he said, till the day that he passed away, a couple of different things. One, he said he would have made it with the St. Louis Browns in St. Louis if it wasn't for Harry becoming the Cardinal broadcaster. He said because Harry got so popular and drew so many fans to the Cardinals that eventually Bill had to sell the Browns to Baltimore. The St. Louis Browns became the Baltimore Orioles. And uh, it was ironic that Harry then broadcast for Bill here in Chicago, and that's how seventh-inning stretch started. As Bill Vec said, I've listened to you sing. You're awful. You're non-threatening. <laughs> so I'm going to put a mic in the booth. You sing. Take me out to the ball game, and the fans are going to hear your voice. They're going to know they sing better than you do, and they will sing along with it. And that's how that seventh inning stretch and the singing came to be with Bill Vec and Harry Carey.
1: And now a lot of people know that. I mean, especially people coming on the scene now, today, or even like towards the end of Harry's career. Yeah. You know that it started here at Comiskey Park.
0: It um, well. For St. Louis for 24 years, I think, something along those lines. Then Oakland for one year. Harry realized, he said, although Charlie Finley treated him well, he realized he was a Midwestern guy. Yeah. He had the chance to come back here with the White Sox, and he came back. And uh, What did you learn um, working with him? Oh, I learned a, a lot of different things, uh, some of them that can't be mentioned here. Um, <laughs> I, I did learn how to be a local broadcaster and how to do certain things that you have to do. He was a fan. I have a different role because I was a baseball guy and an analyst. And he said, you let me be the screamer and you be the voice of reason. And so there's some foreshadowing there. Well, I mean, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of the way it works. Usually with a play-by-play guy and and, and an analyst and Harry, Harry was, I mean, he would tell me after the game, look, you might want to, might want to forget about this or, or do this. He said, don't affect the style. He said, your style is going to come to you. I'm not sure when, and I'm not sure how, and I'm not sure what it's going to be, but it's going to be your style. Don't affect the style because if that guy looking at you thinks that you're a phony, he said, you're not going to get it done. Also, never talk above your listener's head. He said, if if your listener believes that you're talking down to him, you're not going to make it. So occasionally during the course of my broadcast, I'll throw in a, a big word. Just for the sake of throwing one in. But for the most part, the best communicators are the people that you can understand, not the people who make it very difficult to follow what it is you're saying. Harry knew that from the beginning. He was always like the guy sitting at the bar with his best friend talking about the game of baseball. That's the kind of guy. That That was genuine. That was genuine, yes. But he also knew how to sell. He was the greatest salesman of baseball, of beer, of whatever team he happened to be employed by, in this case in Chicago, the White Sox and the Cubs, and, uh, you know, come did you and hang to Chicago. Out, did you hang out with him outside yeah, the booth? I did. I, I had to limit my um, alcoholic intake when I was with him because <laughs> I'll tell you a, a story of George Brett, who was a very young man at the time. And Harry, in the wintertime, lived on the Canyon Country Club in Palm Springs. He lived on the fifth hole of the Canyon Country Club. And George Brett was one of his favorite players. And he said to George why don't you come down in the wintertime, take a few days off, take a week off. You'll come down, you'll play golf every day, and you and I will go out every night. We'll go out, we'll eat, we'll drink, we'll tell stories, we'll have some fun. So George took a week out of his schedule and went down to Palm Springs and planned every night to be with Harry, drinking as long as Harry could drink, and eating you know, whenever Harry wanted to eat. After two days, George went back to Kansas City. And the quote was, I had to leave. I feared for my life. No kidding. And this was a very young man with Harry. So that's essentially what I did because until he had four martinis, he wouldn't let the menus come to the table. And this was after a night game. We'd go to an Italian restaurant because 361 or 2 of the 365 days of the year, he ate Italian food. (laughs) So we would go out. It would be 11.30, quarter to 12. By the time we'd get to a restaurant, they would keep the chef there.
1: And and you had to get up and you had the day. Oh yeah,
0: and he would always order a veal chop with linguine and clam sauce, and you know whatever kind of uh, appetizer that he would have. And then, um, but before he ordered it, he'd have four martinis. So at first, when we first started going out, every time he had a martini, I had a martini. It didn't take me long to figure out that if this continued, that I was going to be, if not dead, certainly terribly impaired. So, but at
1: least you'd already had your. Funeral package. Right.
0: Well, yes. And then it would have been really easy because it wouldn't have been expensive. But I still would have been equally as dead. So we had a deal where I sat down. I ordered my appetizer. Harry had his first martini. I ordered my salad. Harry had his second martini. I ordered my entree. Harry had his third martini. I ordered my dessert. Harry had his fourth martini. And then I would sit with him.
1: What kind of martinis were you drinking?
0: uh, Vodka martinis. Dirty? Dirty. Uh, he drank them as any way they came out. Yeah, <laughs> um, and then <laughs> but picky. but see, he would have martinis before dinner, and then with dinner, he would have either a couple of Budweisers or a couple of glasses of wine, and after dinner, and bear in mind after dinner now after the four martinis, the the veal chop with linguine and clam sauce, he would have. Two or three Grand Marniers, and then he would drop me off at the hotel, and then go out for some he, serious drinking.
1: He would drive
0: you? No, drop me off. We, you we, off. He had a All limousine right. in those days. Oh, okay. Yeah, he wouldn't be driving. I drove with him one so time. So never
1: Budweiser. Yeah. He was never. He was not a Bud man.
0: Oh yeah. Oh, he would have either wine or Budweiser with oh with the, the... dinner, and then Grand Marniers afterwards. But he, <laughs> he um, I drove with him once, and I promised myself that that would never happen again, because he wasn't particularly sober when we went to the restaurant. When we came home, it was worse, and it was dark, and Harry was colorblind, and he couldn't tell the position of the light. So he'd be going 50 miles an hour, come to a street, uh, the street light, and he would slow down to 4 miles an hour. And these cars are buzzing by on both sides, and Harry's creeping along until he sees that the traffic has stopped on that side and that side, knowing that it's a green light. Right. Or if they're going, eventually knowing that it's a red light. He couldn't tell green from red. One trip, that's it. Told him I'd never drive with him again, and I was able to maintain that, the rest of our association. <laughs>
1: was he Was he a preparation guy, or did he just show up? <laughs> um,
0: preparation wasn't his long suit.
1: Harry, yeah. Harry had— <laughs> You're so gentle with it. <laughs> yeah,
0: that, that's—yeah, that you wouldn't say that uh, preparation was something— he, he really didn't know the names of too many guys, and if he did, um, <laughs> as the broadcast, like he, the home team, if he, he did, know. he would mispronounce the guys. And I think sometimes most he did colossal that for mistake
1: you had to correct him on air that you can recall that was almost to a point of uncomfortable.
0: Oh, um, mistakes. I don't know, but I used to tell him exactly how to pronounce these names. Yeah, and I remember talking about Delano de Shields. Delano de Shields was an infielder. Who was from Montreal. And he was later to be known as the guy traded for Pedro Martinez. Pretty good trade for right. Montreal. So I tell him, Harry, we're going to Montreal. Here's this guy. I'll write it down in your book for you phonetically. His name is Delino de Shields. He was a great basketball player. He's a terrific second baseman. It's Delino de Shields. And I spelled it out in his book. And so he goes to pronounce his name the first time and he goes, Coming up, Delino de Sanders. <laughs> I said no, Harry. That's Colonel De Sanders. Um, this is Delano De Shields. And then I tried to get him to pronounce Hector Villanueva. And he wanted to work with those because, L's. Well, I wanted him to use the L's as the way they're supposed to be. But I said to him, pronounce it Hector Villanueva. And I, I spelled it phonetically in his book. The first inning, he called him seven different names, from Villanova <laughs> to Villanueva to Villanoga to Villanaga. <laughs> Anything but right. Vienna them, So, I mean, those names, he did that all the time. But this one time, you remember the campaign for Spuds McKenzie? Sure, yeah, yeah. There weren't the rooftops in those days. There were rooftops. There just was no bleachers. So they had a gigantic blow-up doll that was over the right field wall. <laughs> and it was a Spuds McKenzie. So I said, Harry, there's your pal up there. And Arnie gets a shot. He goes, Yeah. That's my friend, Scotty McKenzie. I said no, Harry, it's, it's not Scotty, it's Spuds. He goes, "Right, Spuds Mcfadden." I said, "No, Harry, it's actually Spuds McKenzie, and I guess if you're going to represent the company, you should figure that out. He's the dog. He's up there. Take a look." Right, so, this was on a daily basis and and it was <laughs> it was unbelievable. Was
1: that was it was that all genuine too or did he play that up?
0: Oh, I think he played some of it up. Some of it was genuine. I remember we're talking about seedless grapes. And this is not when the game is on the line. This is when the game was a horrible game. Yeah. And so I remember he was talking about seedless grapes. And he would get a plug for his limo driver, Alvin Hemphill from Hyatt Limos. And he goes, you know, I was driving with Alvin. And we're going down the street. He was taking me back to the Ambassador East, which is where I stay. And uh, I passed this store. And I saw seedless grapes. Can you imagine that? Seedless grapes. Wow. So I said, Alvin, pull over. So... Alvin pulls over. He says, and I went in. I said to the guy, you've got seedless grapes? And he goes, yes. So I had them. He says, they're wonderful. I, I He says, I couldn't believe it. Seedless grapes. And I said, yeah, Harry, it's, it, they've been around for a while. Uh, he said, how do you think they get seedless grapes? So I said, well, I think perhaps it's a hybrid, Harry. They take a couple of different <laughs> strains of grape. They kind of put them together, splice them together. He goes, well, that doesn't sound right. I said, well, then come up with an explanation of your own. You ask me a question, I'm giving you an answer. He says, well, I don't know what the answer is, but that doesn't sound right. So we had a guy actually call in from the Napa Valley, and he got to the switchboard, who got to Arnie Harris, and Arnie says to, to uh, Harry, Harry, this guy, something Thomas was his last name, something Thomas from the Napa Valley, a grape grower. He said, he called in, he said, Steve is right. That's how they got him. It's a hybrid. So he says, well, it comes to my attention that this guy called in from the Napa Valley and um, and he said that you're right. Well, I don't believe that, but apparently such and such Thomas does, so okay. And he says, but imagine if they ever came out with seedless watermelons. And I didn't have the heart to tell him that they had been out for, I don't know, 10 years at that point. Harry was a little late to the party on a few different things, and so that was uh, yeah, that was kind of nice. Would he... Would he survive in today's PC world? Would he I certainly would hope keep so. A job? Now, he did some things that were interesting because we used to get shots of women perhaps you wouldn't get on the air today. And don't forget the bleachers in those days. Like, what do you mean? What kind of shots? Well, in other words, we had a woman in left center field, and Harry talked about it. Arnie got a shot of this woman who was wearing a very skimpy version of either a halter top or a bathing suit, whatever you want to call it. We get a shot of her, and, and Harry, you know, comments about what a beautiful day it is at Wrigley Field, et cetera, et cetera. So now it's the bottom of the second inning. And Arnie, Arnie Harris, talked to Harry in his ear and said, um, the, sw- the switchboard is lighting up. We can't show that woman again. And Harry goes, why not? He says, well, we just can't. I mean, people are, people are just, they're, they're just, you know, they just don't like it. So we come back for the top of the third, and Harry says, uh, Well, it's come to my attention that some of you out there are taking exception to us showing that beautiful young lady in the left center field bleachers on this gorgeous day for baseball at Wrigley Field. And he stops and he goes, Lighten up, folks, the clock's ticking. <laughs> he said, It's a game. So now, later in the game, we get a note from a wedding party that happens to be in left center field bleachers. So I read the note about this wedding party in left center field bleachers. And he said, Harry said, well, I wonder if that's the girl <laughs> we showed early in the game, if she might be the intended bride. So I said, you know, I said, Harry, I, I've looked on the side and I've looked in the back, there's just not enough people to be a wedding party. And he goes, and there sure ain't any room in front of her. <laughs> so can he do that today? You probably wouldn't want to do that today. Right, right. But Harry literally could say whatever he wanted to say. And he had a, another thing where he said to me, I told the story of Steve Whitaker who came back from Japan and was resurrecting his career in the United States. And in those days, I mean, Cecil Fielder did it, but in those days, yeah. a lot of guys, once they went to Japan, that was it. So Steve Whitaker came back, was playing for the Dodgers, played in Japan, resurrected his career. And I told the story and how interesting and unusual it was. And he says, well, I wonder if he can speak Japanese. I said, well, I don't know. He said, eh, he might not have to. He said, all of those speak English. Wow. So I just sat back and went, hmm, interesting. Didn't elaborate on that one. So now he gets a letter of protest from the Japanese consulate on how saying that is is a racist thing right and so harry who always felt that a good offense is the best defense sends the ambassador a letter and he had two friends in town who were japanese one was yosh kawano who was the clubhouse guy for a thousand years with the cubs and the other was a guy who owned bars in the city of chicago for many years everybody knew him but because he was a bar owner, he took the name of Tommy O'Leary. But he was Japanese, and Harry wrote a letter where he said, "I talked with my two Japanese friends, Yoshikawano and Tommy O'Leary, and they tell me there's nothing wrong with that. So you're the racist for even bringing it up." Well, the guy looked at it and probably thought, "This guy really is crazy," and then just put it away. And that's the last that we heard of that. Right. So that was that was Tommy wonderful.
1: O'Leary. Yeah, that's hilarious. So you talk about today's game, and now today you find yourself. I mean. The career you've had is incredible, but now you're with two guys. You're working with two broadcasters. Yeah. This is probably a first to be going back and you know, working with someone on the road. Probably 81 and 81.
0: I mean, there's a, there's a lot of people who broadcast parts with, with certain people, but usually what happens is it's usually the analysts who rotate in various places. I know a lot of players, I ask them their schedules, and they'll be doing 70 games or 80 games yeah. or you know whatever games, and then analysts rotate in and out with the same play-by-play men. But this, I think, is different because there's two distinct and quite different play-by-play men.
1: You've worked with Hawk for years. You guys are fantastic, and it's documented um, about how you guys have worked together. Talk about Jason Benetti. And, um, you know, because I know know that he's connecting with the fan base and he's bringing uh, a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm into the booth.
0: Jason is the new breed of broadcaster in that he really is a computer guy, and he does a lot of work. Um, I see him all the time calling things up on his computer. He does a lot of research. I mean, he spends a great deal of time on each and every game. I would say it's not unusual for each and every game for him to spend two or three hours preparing for the game.
1: How many martinis does he have? Um, As far as I know, he has
0: none. (laughs) Um, And by the way, that was a misnomer of Harry um, as far as drinking in the booth. He wanted to perpetuate that. Maybe in 15 years, he might have had 45 beers. Harry didn't drink in the booth. It was absolutely a carefully crafted image that he had sure but he did the game he was a professional broadcaster yeah. jason uh, i don't I, I think jason maybe has a glass of wine every now and then i don't know uh we do have a lot of meals we eat lunch together all the time i haven't seen him have one yet so um
1: i was more kidding about the no, fact that he's he no, has no. a total different approach no than. It,
0: well i mean the approach is interesting because he's a product of his generation yeah. he's going to be 33 years old and these are the guys that learned Use the computer. That use it well. I'm still working on tweets, as Brad Boron can tell you. Uh, sometimes they're not so good. I am of you know being in the restaurant business for many years. I am uh, I am a big fan of the customer isn't always right, and so I answer them different than Jason answers them. <laughs> but uh, he's really good with it, and he knows all of the prevalent stats. And I'm learning things from him. Uh, But he's got
1: to be pinching himself growing up in Chicago
0: to be working with you. Well, I'm not sure that that's so good. But what is good is that he's broadcasting for the team he grew up rooting for. Not only he rooted for them, but his parents rooted for them. And usually that's what happens. Whoever your parents root for, you gravitate to that. So they're from Homewood, Flossmoor. And because of that, everywhere we go, when we walk around downtown, it's astonishing to me how many people are from Homewood, Flossmoor. I'm pretty (laughs) sure that... The whole of downtown Chicago actually moved from (laughs) Homewood-Flossmoor. And now, because we walk down the street and people, hey, Jason, nice to see you. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm from Homewood-Flossmoor. Oh, yeah, great. Good to see you. It's amazing to me. Number one, he is recognizable because he has CP. Yeah. Um, As far as I know, probably the first major broadcaster, certainly in Major League Baseball, that's ever had that. And one of the things I said when we started working together was that the greatest – Time for Jason Bennett is going to be when people don't recognize him as the great broadcaster with CP just as the great broadcaster. And that's coming and it's more and more with every day because you hear his voice. It's very small. Oh, his presentation so is great. Yeah, he's fantastic. And it is a completely different broadcast. Hawk, because he was a player, he likes to bleed over into analysis. And so he does. And he knows hitting much better than I know hitting. So I think for the viewer it gives him uh, a lot of insight into the hitting aspect of it. I try to bring the pitching aspect of it. The regular baseball aspect of it is what it is. But Jason's a different broadcast. It's more like for me, more like being the typical analyst sure. where he's asking me a lot of questions. I'm answering it. We're getting some in-depth baseball. And that's one of the things that um, that's interesting because you have fans watching that are new to the game. Fans who have been fans for a short period of time, fans who are lifelong fans, fans who played baseball and know how it's played, and you have to give part of your broadcast to each and every segment. You say some things that are rudimentary, and the fan who's been a fan for a long time will go, duh. Yeah. Well, you're not doing it for that fan. You're doing it for the fan that might be watching his fifth game. They, they might be new to the game. I've got to explain the game to them. So That's every has got to be hard to remind yourself of that. Well, I, I, I've been doing it long enough now. To understand how to do it and to bring a little bit to each and every one that's why the sphere, whatever you want to call it that's why it's a little frustrating to me because people don't get what I'm trying to explain the line drive double play Tyler Saladino was at second base he didn't happen to look where Robinson Cano was it was line drive up the middle it was a rocket he might have been doubled off anyway but as it turned out he ran toward third what I said and I made it a teaching moment was that you have to look where your fielders are. The yeah. responsibility of a guy on base is look where every outfielder is and then look where every infielder is. So when the ball is hit, you have a pretty good idea in your own mind. You only have to worry about seven guys. Um, you have a pretty good idea if a guy can get to the ball and when you should go and when you shouldn't. And so this one fan tweeted in that, uh, well, he'd have been doubled anyway. I said, you missed the point. It was a teaching moment. Well, no, I got the point, but he'd have been doubled off. Yeah, that's not the point. Exactly. The point is, for all you young players, was to look at your fielders, know where they are. You'll be a better base runner if you know where they are, which is the point I was trying to make. And so we've also had a lot of guys doubled off this year. In close games, and we play a lot of them, you lose games 90 feet at a time, whether you're taking it or giving the 90 feet. You're either going to win the game taking the 90 feet or lose it giving away the 90 feet. If you keep getting doubled off, you're not giving another offensive guy a chance to drive in some runs. That's happened way too much. That's something they've got to tighten up.
1: Yeah, the, um, I think people lose sight of that, it being a longer game, longer form game. That it's, it's the, you, you have a few hours of a game, but there are one or two moments where you can win or lose.
0: And that's, that's absolutely the case. Plus, I think one of the greatest things in all of sports, this is a team game. You have nine men on your team. It's a team game. But the classic confrontation of pitcher and hitter, it is mano a mano. The advantage a pitcher has is the hitter doesn't know what he's going to throw, and he's got seven guys behind him and one guy in front of him to try to get that hitter out. So that's why if you're successful a third of the time, a third, you're a superstar. If you're successful 30% of the time, you're going to make a great deal of money in the game. But that confrontation, that's one of the reasons why I love to pitch, because that is the ultimate confrontation in the game. So this is a team game built around individual competitions, and it makes for a wonderfully blended sport. And baseball, to me, is like chess. It's like top-level chess. Once you learn the way the, the uh, pieces move, chess is an easy game. Yeah. I mean, you get the rook, he's going this way, and he's going this way and you get the bishop and he's going that way and that way and you get the queen can go any way as many squares and once you get that idea down it's an easy game but the grandmasters play it at a level that very few people can attain.
1: Did you play the game at a very cerebral rate? Not
0: at first not at first but you never know how good you're going to be that's why you mentioned Carlton Fisk. Carlton Fisk was a great player I wasn't a great player. I had to be more observant than the players who had the talent of Carlton Fisk or anybody who inhabits the Hall of Fame, because I wasn't going to be a Hall of Famer. So I had to try to squeeze everything I could out of five feet, nine and a quarter inches. A starting pitcher in the major leagues under six feet tall, you can count them on one hand. Yeah. In my era and the era now. You and Jim Parquet. Well, you don't find many. You don't find many. Well, he was left-handed. Oh, yeah. Um, i talking about right-handers because right, there are very few left-handers. Right-handers, they get a bunch of them, so they want them 6'3 and above if they yeah. can get them there. But I had to be more observant because I didn't have those kind of skills. I had to do whatever I could to try to beat the opponent. I had to beat a what guy that clicked? was going to the Hall of Fame.
1: What clicked in 1980. You win the Cy Young Award. You go twenty-five and seven. Which congratulations on that! That's amazing. Accomplishment. (laughs) Thanks. Was a a little late to the game on that, but I've been meaning to congratulate you for that. Yeah,
0: I mean three twenty-three ERA. What was different that year? By the way, what was different? It really started the middle of nineteen seventy-nine, and I've documented this. I've written three books. I've put bits and pieces of the transition. It was a set of mental gymnastics that I developed for me. Decided I didn't want to be mediocre anymore that I thought there was a better pitcher in there than I had shown, and now I had to find a way to get him out, get that pitcher out. See if, in fact, he really was there. Was there a better pitcher inside of me than I had shown to that point? And to do that, I had to completely change the mental approach to the game, and I had to be able to learn how to create concentration, and once having lost concentration, I had to learn how to get it back. They call it focus today. It's very (laughs) important, the focus of the game. Well... I'll give you just one quick example, and this is in a lot of things that I developed. Starting in the middle of 1979 at the All-Star break, I made 50 starts, 50 starts from the middle of 1979 to the end of 1980. My elbow was still together. It was before I got hurt. made 50 starts and lost seven times because of a mental transformation that I went through in the middle of 1979. And one of the things is this, concentration or focus, take your pick. It's like a narrow beam of light that you see in a movie. You see a laser scope in a movie where a guy puts a little red dot on your head and the head explodes with special effects. That's what concentration is, a little red dot. That's how focused you have to be to win Major League Baseball games, to throw to a certain spot, to make the pitch you want to make. Now, the question is, once you have that, you're going to lose it. You've got five senses. You're being pushed and pulled every which way. You hear something, it distracts you. Something pops into your mind, it distracts you. You see something, it distracts you. The five senses come into play. And when you're distracted, how do you get it back? Well, I found that it was essential to get it back and get it back quickly. So what I, devo- what I, I developed into was I figured a shape that I really liked. I like triangles. I think they're very powerful. So I put a triangle on my glove. I wore a Wilson A2000, and right next to the W, I put the shape of a triangle. And all of a sudden, I found myself on the mound, and I wasn't thinking about what I needed to think about. I would sit and look at that triangle, and when the only thing existed in the world was that triangle, I knew that my focus was right back to where it had to be, and that's when I made my pitch. I also gave myself the green and brown theory. I gave myself any emotion I wanted to give myself when I was on the green grass. When I got to the brown of the mound, all of a sudden, I physically allowed every emotion to drain away because for a pitcher, anger is a luxury he can't afford. And so I wanted to have concentration. I wanted to have no emotions. I wanted this to be a completely analytical, well-thought-out pitch. Every time you make a pitch that's not well-thought-out, and not well-thought-out is not a curveball for a strike. That's
1: mentally exhausting. Well,
0: it is, and that's why at the end of a game it was so satisfying because it was the only endeavor that I've ever done in my life where I was completely spent physically, emotionally, and psychologically.
1: You must have been fun to hang out with that year. Uh, well, there are a few people... You won't people, talk to me. Well, are, you're not there, a triangle. There
0: are a few people that, uh, <laughs> that would say... Uh, I
1: remember... Um, uh, Who was your catcher? Was it Dempsey? Um, Rick Dempsey. Yeah. Uh, but, but... Is I, that someone that you... He'd get in your face. You would, would listen to him?
0: Well, the, you always listen to your catcher, and then you do what you want to do. Because as soon as I see a column that says losing catcher, I'll let him tell me what to do. Yeah, right. The column says losing pitcher. I'm going to tell him what I want to do. And a strong pitcher is going to always tell the catcher what he wants to do. Now, I know the scouting Report just like he does. I know if this hitter moved. I used to watch the hitter's feet. If he moved from a spot that he usually stood and moved up an inch or two, I knew that. I didn't have to depend on the catcher. What I wanted my catcher to be, and Rick was perfect, I wanted him to be a mechanic. I wanted him to block pitches in the dirt, which is essential. If I had a man 90 feet away from scoring a run at third, I can't throw my best curveball if I think the catcher is going to miss it. Dempsey told me early in our association, throw it in the dirt. I want your best curveball. I don't want you hanging hang anything. You throw it and bury it in the dirt. He goes, you cannot throw the ball by me in the dirt. The only way you can get it by me is over my head. Well, that gave me a great deal of confidence because then you'll throw your best curveball. And he blocked everything I threw. He was, as a catcher physically, he was really gifted. And if I gave him a shot, he threw the base runner out.
1: You played some good catchers. In college, you, you threw to Thurman Munson, correct? I did.
0: Thurman was an unbelievable athlete. Probably would have been in the Hall of Fame, but died prematurely uh, trying to fly jets, doing touch-and-goes where he lived at Canton Airport. He was a native of Canton, Ohio, Um, my catcher for three years, and uh, we had a good relationship.
1: You guys stayed in touch through the 70s? Oh, well,
0: we played against one another in the big leagues. He was a Yankee star. I was uh, uh, some some guy starting the occasional game. So I remember the first time we were going to play first time we're going to face one another in the major leagues i took him to lunch at rj grunts plug anyway um so we were sitting there and i said uh i said he said to me you still throwing that big curveball i said no actually i'm throwing lots of sliders now uh he said really i said yeah my elbow isn't great you know so i'm throwing mostly sliders so he said no interesting I said, how are you doing? He says, you know, I can't really throw. I took a couple of foul tips off my right shoulder, and I'm just not throwing real well. I said, oh, geez, that's, I'm sorry to hear that, you know. So Thurman, you got to understand, one year struck out 38 times in 300, in 638 at bats. He struck out 38 times. Wow. So I pitched against him that night for the first time ever as a pro. I struck him out the first three times I faced
1: him. Throwing a curveball.
0: Of course, he didn't (laughs) see anything else. The fourth time, he screams out at me, and I will save you the expletive, but you can imagine, throw that blanking fastball. So I threw one this high. He comes off his feet, fouls it straight back, and I yelled at, that's it. (laughs) Threw him another curveball, he grounded a shortstop. So he went 0 for 4.
1: Were there guys that you would yell to during that bat sometimes?
0: Not too many, because yeah. most of them were bigger than me. And the, the visual of them chasing me around the infield, which is why um, I tried not to be a headhunter. I hit a lot of guys. I led the league and hit batsmen one year. But I had to because I threw so many curveballs away, I had to throw in. But um, anyway, then that story with Munson, later in the game, we had a leadoff double. We're losing 2-1 to one in the ninth inning. And they put a pinch runner in. Joe Keo was a pinch runner. the The batter tries to bunt, misses it. Thurman picks him off second base. They win the game two to one. He sends over a New York writer, and a little slip of paper. He says, "Here, Thurman, gives you this." I open it up. If I can't beat you with my bat, I'll beat you with my arm. I wrote him back a little non-complimentary note and sent it back (laughs) with the New York writer. That was Thurman, interesting fellow, great, great player. So, um, yeah, that was. uh,
1: I mean, six decades in the game, Steve. You probably have are connected to everybody. Six That's, degrees
0: of separation from yeah. me. Yeah, it goes back through a lot of guys till uh, a lot of their uh, – the, the pitching coach of the Seattle Mariners is Mel Stottlemyre. His father, sure. Mel Stottlemyre, was a wonderful pitcher for the Yankees. Yeah. And I got a chance in 1964, I believe, I got a chance to go out with him at night because a buddy of mine that I pitched in, in summer league ball was in the Yankee organization. He knew him. And we went out, and it was unbelievable.
1: He, he was a guy that hung out with mantle and those guys. Well he right? played with them Yeah.
0: But I must ask him five hundred questions and he very patiently answered every one of them and I was fascinated. So I owe that debt of gratitude to Mel Stademeyer who's not doing very well these days.
1: That's well, not that's too bad to hear. How about um someone that you were in awe to meet in your career as a baseball uh baseball guy?
0: The guy that I idolized growing up was Sandy Koufax. And it was for a couple of different things. Number one he was the greatest Jewish pitcher that ever lived. And being Jewish, that was an idol of mine. But also, I noticed
1: as I got older... You're up there with most wins by a Jewish pitcher, I think I'm pitcher, fourth right? now. I think uh, Jason, Jason
0: Marquis. Holtzman is second. I think Marquis is third now. He passed me up. Um, and I think I'm fourth. Eh, there'll be a lot of others along the way. But um, Sandy is still going to be the best. I don't believe anybody's going to come along to be better than him. And so... What I liked about him was that there was no scandal ever attached to his name. He, he did everything right. He was a very classy guy. And to me, that was the way you conduct yourself as a professional player. I really enjoyed the fact that he was a quality human being yeah. outside of being an extraordinary pitcher.
1: Well, I think so many people are in awe of that guy. And he said, yeah, he Scott him. Reifert's got a picture in his office, him and Sandy. And you should, have you seen that picture? I Scott looks so happy. <laughs> In the picture, uh, he's, you got to see it.
0: Yeah, he's something.
1: All right, so I don't think a lot of people can imagine you not talking baseball. Yes. Do you get away from the game sometimes? And when you do, what do you do to chill out?
0: Well, number one, I like to read. Uh, every road trip, I'll read two or three books. No kidding. Yeah, um, that's to me. That's one of the great. All out loud to life. Hawk? Uh, not even audio books, regular <laughs> books. And I have to.
1: I can't. I can't do it on a pad uh
0: i have to i have to have actually the the book the physical book in my hand you have enough
1: time to do that do you you don't do you hang out with the other broadcasters on the road do you like the radio guys you out with ed and dj you you play golf no no
0: (laughs) no never played golf with them it's really funny because when i was a partner with ed we played golf every day and we ate lunch together every day and then when i moved over to television i have never played golf with ed since and i've never had lunch with ed so, Man. the answer would be no. It's like you um, guys broke up. Never have lunch with DJ, never played golf with DJ, never had lunch with Hawk, never played golf with Hawk.
1: So, I'm going to introduce you to these the guys. Answer,
0: <laughs> the answer would be no. Uh, I haven't. So, you're, you're you know, reading books. One of those things. Um, yeah. You still play tennis? I don't.
1: Ping-pong? Uh, I, I read that you were like a phenomenal yeah. tennis player growing up. Right? Well, I was. I and was a ping-pong champion?
0: Champ? And I, I was the university champion in ping-pong. Any racket sports, I mean, when you have good hand-eye coordination, racket sports just seem to come and, and they went. So I liked all sports. Um, and to me, it was a way to kill time until baseball season. My father sat me down after I won the city tournament in singles and doubles. He sat me down and said, you can't pitch and play tennis because it's going gonna, it's gonna to tear up your arm." Yeah, he said. So if you wanna, if you wanna be a jack of all trades, I don't care. Do you know you can do anything you want, but if you're really thinking about doing anything seriously, pick one. Well, I was a better tennis player than a pitcher. At the time I was very small, and I just didn't have any kind of fastball to dominate hitters. Just had a real big curveball, and so I loved baseball. I liked tennis, and so I put it, my tennis racket down when I was thirteen. Really, never touched it again for thirteen years. Really, yeah. I was that an athlete? You know, What's that?
1: Was your father an athlete?
0: No, my mother was the athlete. Your mother was. I get my athletic ability from her. She. My father told me that she was always the first one picked when they would play streetball of whatever sport yeah. they were playing. Yeah, they'd always pick her. And she you guys led are from Ohio? From Cleveland. From Cleveland. Yes.
1: Were you fired up about the uh, the Cavs this year? Or?
0: I would have been more fired up, I think, if LeBron hadn't left the Cavs like he did the first time. I, I appreciate the fact that he left. Yeah. I really disliked the orchestration of it. I right. really disliked the Jim Gray extravaganza that. that.
1: Yeah, that turned followed, a lot of people it. off.
0: But I think it was great for the city because it was a city that hadn't had a winner. Yeah. Uh, the Indians have won since 48. The Browns have never won a Super Bowl. The Cavs never won anything. And so. Uh,
1: you still a Cleveland guy in your head a little bit? No.
0: Sh- I'm a Chicago guy. Chicago guy. I mean, Cleveland, my parents uh, passed away. I've got a stepmother who lives there with her family, but I'm not a Cleveland guy. Yeah. I appreciate the city. I like to see them doing well. Um, I'm really happy this year for, uh, for the Indians fans, although there's not a whole lot of them coming to the ballpark. But as they're quick to point out, they do come on the weekends. Yeah. So if you didn't play six or seven times a week, that would be okay. But they'll find out. They've got a pretty good I team I like Cleveland.
1: There. I work a club in Cleveland, and I enjoy it. Uh, I enjoy the city. I've got good, good people yeah. there. You plugged RJ Grunts earlier. You are a partner with Lettuce Entertain You. You are a restaurant guy. I've run into you at Hub 51 several oh, times. Yeah. I saw you, witnessed you um, talking to Jared Melman about a particular dish, and you even made a little uh, recommendation on the side sauce to, to put with it. I forget what it was. Yeah, they probably don't listen to me but, very much. <laughs> but, do you it, fancy yourself a foodie? Are you? Uh...
0: Um, no, but there are certain things that I do know. I've been partners with Rich Melman for 42 years. Uh, we, uh, I was an original Lettuce Entertain You owner. I left when I became a free agent, went to Baltimore. He asked me to sell my shares back and I did.
1: You were a member in the seventies as a player with I, Grunson. Yes. I was wow. the fifth.
0: I was the fifth owner of Lettuce Entertain You from the beginning. That's for amazing. For when, for when six different restaurants with six different corporations all melded into Lettuce Entertain You. I was one of those original guys. And then I sold my shares back because it didn't look like I'd come back to Chicago. When I came back, I asked Richard to get reinvolved again, and so there was Shaw's. I got reinvolved in Shaw's and Joe Stone Crab. I'm there and RPM and RPM Steak and SNL Twenty Seven and a couple of others here and there. So I think I've got eh, maybe twenty eight of them. In case eh, twenty eight. In, <laughs> eh, well, in, in case this well, in case this broadcast gig ever <laughs> falls through, I got, you know I'll always be able to get a meal. It's kind yeah. of nice.
1: All right, I don't think it is going to fall what, what I
0: told Jared, and it was a sauce that I thought overpowered the dish. I thought there was a better sauce for that particular dish. Again, he probably didn't pay attention. He does pay attention when his father makes the suggestion, however, as <laughs> right. Richard might be if he's not the best restaurateur in the country, he's in the top two. Isn't it incredible yeah. what, what they've done? And the kids the kids have worked very well. They work hard. They're good they kids, do. which is a testament to Martha, his wife, yes, who raised them very well. It's tough to raise really smart, industrious kids today. Yeah. And she's raised three of them.
1: Yeah, especially kids that grow up with, you know, in, in a successful yeah. ar- arena like that. They are, uh, they are good people. All right, we're going to get you out of here. A couple more questions. Sure. Uh, favorite baseball movie?
0: My favorite baseball movie is Field of Dreams. Yeah. I love it. I also like The League of Their Own. I thought that was terrific. I particularly like John Lovitz. So I wanted to see a little bit more of him. I thought the movie was good. But Field of Dreams tugs at your heartstrings uh when he's playing catch with his dad it's one of those things that you know you just have to cry that's just it you just have to
1: favorite chicago baseball moment
0: favorite chicago baseball moment that's really interesting um i'm trying to think because my great moments really came in baltimore um probably the moment that I look back on and say that was the best thing that happened to me was getting traded from San Francisco to the White Sox. I didn't know how great it was going to be when I got traded to Chicago. All I know is I was coming from San Francisco, my original team. This was a a city that I had never been to before. And I got one of the great tips ever from a White Sox outfielder. You might remember Rick Reichert. Yeah. Um, Rick Reichert, did something interesting he told everybody who could fix him up with his future wife he'd give him ten thousand dollars I thought was kind of interesting good way to get married but um <laughs> it's uh, a show now it's like, yeah right he said he was right. ahead of his time I know he said to me he said you're single I said yes he goes live downtown I said well I've been in the suburbs you know kind of suburb no 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 you're single Chicago you live downtown that was 1973 this is 2016. I still live downtown.
1: <laughs> That's great. Uh, all right, Steve, I could talk to you forever. We're going to be doing this podcast for a while, and we would love to have you back on because there's so much to talk to you about. You, could just, you should you. have your own podcast. You should you have your own show. You could fill your own show well, with all your with stories. four
0: radio shows a week as well as every baseball game, both home and away, because I do 166 games a year, Yeah, the plate's a little full at this point. But if I ever get some moments, I will come back and as far as having my own show. See, you have to you have to prepare too much with all the questions. I respond to the questions. That's the easy part. Pat, well, you did a great you, job.
1: Thank you, Steve. You responded greatly. We appreciate your time. Uh, well, there you have it, 1980 American League Cy Young Award winner. And how about this? He is beloved all over Chicago, uh, known now as the uh, broadcaster for the Chicago White Sox, uh, Steve Stone.
0: Thank you.